We have a new show at Turpentine that's been in the works for a long time, Company Breakdowns. We dive into S1s and Series B and beyond companies, interviewing founders and investors to break down the companies. First episode is on Rubrik, which IPO'd this week. Upcoming episodes cover Reddit, Databricks, and more. Subscribe at the link in the description or search for Company Breakdowns on YouTube or in the podcast platform of your choice. Jeff Lawson, yeah. who's a great leader and a great CEO. And when I joined the company, and this was four years before the roadshow, again, our revenue was, ARR was between 10 and $20 million. We were in an investor meeting, just an informal meeting. And they said something and asked some question about our growth. And I said the answer, hey, one day when Twilio is a billion dollar company, here's what it's going to look like. And Jeff Lawson stared at me with complete stink eyes. And the only time he and I had been out of sync, and he was like, what do you mean only a $1 billion company? Here we are, we're at, you know, of course, the mathematical chance of us hitting that level. Less than 1%. (laughs) Yeah, it was nil. And of course, you know, today the company's at $4 billion. By the way, that's the only time him and I have ever been out of sync in an investor meeting. We got out of our system early. Is this thing on? Yesterday's price is not today's price. Well said, Fat Joe. Well said. And welcome back to Run the Numbers, where I interview world-class CFOs, operators, and the investors who fund them on how to get the most out of your company's performance. This podcast is a playbook of sorts for ambitious people in the worlds of finance, strategy, and operations. Today, my guest is Lee Kirkpatrick, the former CFO of Twilio. Lee was at the financial helm when the company went public in 2016, which was one of the most publicized offerings of that year. We spend the episode going through the nuances of an initial public offering, the before, the during, and the after. On this episode, we cover the process of picking bankers and lead left investors, also called a bake-off the strategy of picking which investors will receive an allocation, how share pricing discovery works, and what it's like to increase the price in the days right before the IPO, deciding which metrics you will disclose and guide to, and prosecuting your very first earnings call as a public CFO. Lee gets hyper-specific in this episode. He takes us behind the scenes as they're waiting to ring the bell on the New York Stock Exchange. He recalls who sat next to him on his very first earnings call, And he even covers the music he and Jeff Lawson were jamming out to on the private jet as they studied up for their investor meetings throughout the roadshow. While Lee and I concentrate on a specific period of time and a specific IPO, this episode is valuable evergreen advice for anyone who wants the inside baseball on initial public offerings and what a CFO is responsible for throughout the process. All this and much more after a short word from our sponsors. Welcome back to the Run the Numbers podcast. I'm CJ Gustafson here with Lee Kirkpatrick, the former CFO of Twilio. Thanks for joining me, Lee. Great to be here, CJ. Looking forward to this. So Lee, I've studied Twilio's journey to the public markets for quite a while. And so you went public in June of 2016. When did you start the process of preparing to go public? And what did you do to prepare ahead of that? Yeah, you know, I think the process really started when we made some very important hires, bringing in a, a you know, first class, world class controller, VP of finance, and general counsel. So when you're making those commitments, 
You're only going to do that to give the equity and the expense up and, and make that effort if you feel you're going to go public. So that's kind of the soft launch. The hard launch was, you know, basically 18 months prior to our target date. So we went public in June 2016. We were actually targeting to go public earlier in the year or late 2015. So we started the process in earnest in 2014 with you know checklists, pulling teams together, and setting in a, a rigorous, systematic process. Wow. So you started thinking about that quite a bit back. And I remember when you IPO'd at Twilio, you were around $170 million in revenue. So you must have sensed that we're onto something great here. This can be you know, a transformational company. And you started making the hires even back then to say, let's get prepared for this. Yeah, we we felt, in fact, we were a bit bigger. I think we were public at about a $60 million last quarter. But yeah, yeah. We, we felt we had something special. One, we were different. You know, Twilio was a product-led growth company before PLG, a product-led growth was even a term. We were a usage, had a usage-based model. And at that time, that was extremely unpopular to have a usage, right. usage-based model we had to define ARR differently than the other approaches for SaaS companies. And then, of course, we were API and developer focused, which were also new. So we had something unique. There was no comps, but, you know, we had the growth rate. We were growing, you know, close to 100% year over year. We had great retention. Our customers loved us. So, yes, we knew we were on to something. And it's so funny that you say that it was kind of cutting edge back then to be a usage-based company, because that's all the rage now. You, you were kind of ahead of your time. Yeah, we actually, we actually had a statement. We'd say to the investors, we'd say, hey, you investors, you love a SaaS model where people are locked into the revenue, but customers actually don't like that. You know, so we have something our customers like. You don't like it, but we're going to get you to like it. It's funny. If you look at Snowflake's Investor Day presentation, Mike Scarpelli has a big slide in there in a section always that says, we are not a subscription company. And I'm always reminded of that, that you got to remember that not every tech company out there has the same monetization methods. Yeah, yeah. Back at this time, it was a little more difficult again, because there were not a lot of comps to look to. And to go for that. So there was a lot of groundbreaking and people, when they look back at Twilio, they go, Hey Lee, that must've been, that was great. You know, that was a no brainer. That was a rocket ship. You know, I joined the company at about 12 or 15 million in revenue. ARR left close to a billion ARR. The company is now at 4 billion, but along the way, there were a lot of people that were not excited or interested and investing in a, a communications company and a usage-based company, they wanted the the workday or net suite type of basic SaaS. Now, obviously, that broke through because a lot of value is created with the usage-based model. How hard was it to describe that model to bankers in the lead-up? I'm, I'm jumping around a little bit, but I'm just curious. I, bankers traditionally like to think of everything in like these neat boxes. Like, how can I get you into my model here? It took some work. You know, we worked with good teams at, at Goldman Sachs and JP Morgan. They were collaborative. But again, you know, we came in with metrics and definitions. And in my time, ARR was based on contracted subscribed revenue. And I suddenly came up and I had these slides saying, here's our ARR. And they're like, wait a minute, that that revenue is not contracted. And I said, yeah, but it's consistent. And we have a, a very predictable net dollar retention rate. 
and we have a very low customer churn. So this revenue is just as predictable and stable as that contracted revenue. So we're calling it ARR. And now, of course, there's all sorts of definitions around ARR recurring revenue, but we had to make up a lot of that stuff because it didn't exist. And so we touched on this idea of seeing into the future of saying, you know, we should probably get our ducks in a row in order to prepare to potentially go public. But was there like a threshold or a trigger that you're waiting on to see internally at the company to say we're ready? Did you sit down with Jeff Lawson and say, you know, once we hit this point in revenue or customers, like, I think we're ready to go? We certainly had metrics around revenue, but the most important list is we had a legal diligence checklist and a finance checklist, and we looked at our product roadmap, but we had this list that said it would be a very bad idea for us to be a public company if the following circumstances were still true. And so that was that was the key list. And that list had some items like single point of failure for key positions, you know, in spite of having a company of hundreds of people you know, there's always a one or two, like a key product manager. Wow, if that person left, we were going to be in big trouble. We also had a really terrific product, a voice over IP product that was in beta. And it was better than the competitions. It could scale, but it was operating at about a 99.5% uptime. And that needed to get up to, you know, at least three nines. So we, we had this list of, we just don't want to be public exposed in these areas. So That was actually more important than really a revenue or customer threshold. I just want to call that out because you're a CFO and I think a lot of people were saying, oh, you know, once we're in $100 million in trailing revenue, but to you, you're calling out things that are going concerns at the company and even qualitative things just around how the company is run and and the stability. Yes. And I think that's, you know, to go into an earnings call or to have to give some bad news or to have to deal with a bad press release. We had all those downside scenarios and said, we really want to be avoiding these. And that was that checklist. Again, that was, it would be a bad idea if the following was there. You know, this was a fast growing company. So we did have the benefit of strong revenue going forward. At the time, you know, Twilio was the third fastest software company to reach hundred million in ARR, I think Workday in, in Salesforce with other two companies. You know, since then, there's been terrific companies, like you mentioned, Snowflake, that have probably eclipsed that rate. But it was a fast-growing company, so revenue wasn't really the issue. Okay. So take me back to the morning when Twilio went public. Where were you? Who were you with? And what numbers were you keeping an eye on throughout the day? Well, we were, let's say we were sitting in the New York Stock Exchange. We had just gone on a tour and seen all the great companies you know, that had gone public prior. And I think they had a Fabergé egg in the room and all of that. So we're in that, the hallowed halls, sitting off in some side room you know, with our bankers and you know, the market opens and then you, you're waiting for the stock to price. And so we were you know, on the phone with the capital markets team at Goldman Sachs and JP Morgan while they're looking to balance supply, demand, supply, demand. So I was sitting with the banking team and, and the management team. And, you know, I think it was about a 90 minute delay in opening. And that was a very long 90 minutes. A 90 minute layover on the day you're supposed to take off. Yeah, it, it does take them a while to get it all together. And you're definitely nervous. But, you know, these people are pros and they want to match and get the right set of investors and in, in supply and demand all matching up before we launched. And so you've done everything internally you can to possibly prepare. But if I remember correctly, the first day of trading in 2016, it was actually the day of the Brexit vote. Were you worried at all about external factors? 
Yeah, we, we had our list of external factors. Now, we actually had a call, and I won't say which bank, with the UK team of one of our lead banks, so their experts, like prior to that. And, you know, they assured us that there was no chance that Brexit was going to pass. So that, was, <laughs> uh, that wasn't really going to be an issue for us. Um, so we were surprised, like most everyone, probably caught in our bubble. But we were ready to go. The team was ready. The company's ready. The numbers were ready. So barring any really major macro force, we were going to push out. So were, were you on your iPhone throughout the day, refreshing the stock price? Like what numbers were you looking at? Was it just the price or were you also looking for something with the shares? We're looking at price and looking at trading volume and, and talking yeah. to you know our traders in terms of the floor. Yes. But, you know, at that point, you know, once you've launched, right, much of it's out of your hand. So <laughs> you're not going to get the data until later on in terms of like who the owners are. But I think by the end of trading, you were up something like 92%. So that probably was a, a good feeling at the end of the day once it closed. Yeah. You know, we, we started off, I think our first print and our prospectus was, uh, I believe, $12. We ended up pricing up at 15 and traded up into the 20s. And, you know, it was, I think we benefited a from definitely a supply demand issue, you know, the markets were not good in 2015, early 2016. There was one spinoff of technology, but we were the first IPO of that year. So, you know, we went out again, we, we felt there was definitely some risks, but we thought there'd be some upside of having the spot to come out. And so the fact that we came out with confidence in this poor market, it's probably going to work well or it was going to flop. And luckily, it worked on the upside. I think fortune favors the bold in a lot of ways. And this may be great advice for companies out there thinking about going public maybe in 2024. Because if you look at the backlog of companies out there, there are probably over 500 who technically qualify from a valuation perspective if they haven't catalyzed like the external realities yet. But the market can only absorb so many. Like We can't have two IPOs a day for a year and a half. So maybe there is some benefit in kind of risking it a bit and, and going first boldly. Yeah, I agree with that, CJ. And also, I think on top of it, from a, from a branding experience, when no one else is out there, if, if you're going public and there's 10 other companies going before and after you, you know, in that week, you're not going to get the branding. And we, we were out, we were on Kramer, we were the headline, we were all the conversation was going on. So from a awareness standpoint, it was huge. Any company now, I feel that that is in a strong position with your numbers. And if the branding is valuable to you, I think it, it is something to strongly consider. And it's it's so interesting to think of an IPO like that. It's not only a capital raising event, it, it's a marketing event. I mean, it's really your coming up party to the enterprise to say, look at us. And so there's an intangible value in that too. Yeah, yeah, and I'd agree with that. And especially if you're if you're a market leader like at, at Twilio, we invested more in R and D, and our pricing was probably you know on average ten percent higher than a lot of our competitors. And you know we felt that was worth it because of our investment in security, our investment in product velocity. If you put Twilio on the platform, you know we're going to invest and continue to invest and improve the product. We felt our uptime, um, you know, as measured, the best we can measure was better than all of our competition. And so we wanted to be a public company, you know, well-branded, that's stable, well-capitalized. So when we go to the enterprises, it's like, 
go on our platform. Don't go to this other person who's trying to beat us on price. You said uh, you were on Kramer and a bunch of other things that day and got a lot of branding. Did you get to meet anybody famous or cool? Here's how it works, by the way, when you're a CFO. Yeah. Jeff Lawson, our CEO, met everyone famous and cool. After the IPO, I did multiple interviews in a room with, with multiple newspapers and magazines, but Jeff got all the big important people and then I, I did everyone else. <laughs> <laughs> he got to do all the fun stuff and they they put you in the back with all the nerds to run the numbers. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, it was still a good experience and it, it was important PR, but yeah, no, he, he got the TV time. Hey, thanks for listening. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsors. Lee, you'd mentioned, I think you started out at $12 and then it went to 15 and I don't know if it went to 17 from there, but basically the price moved up a bit. How did you arrive at the initial offering price? And then were there any last minute considerations or changes to move it up? How did that work? Yeah, I mean, a couple of things. Again, it was, it was a bit of a challenge for us because our model was very different. Again, usage-based, product-led growth. We had a, a lower gross margin profile and the 55% range but also a very low sales and marketing expense with kind of offset right. that. So we had a model people were used to. We were looking at pricing around four or five times next year's uh, revenue. Now, again, this is a company that's you know, over $200 million growing 70% plus year over year. So we were bantering that around and that was, we had gotten some feedback. We'd done a test the waters roadshow a few months earlier. And then the other consideration, I mentioned there had not been many IPOs that year. We made the decision to get commitments from Fidelity and T. Rowe Price and actually printed them on our cover. So they were committing to invest. And so what that did is we felt that gave us some security. Other people would know these two large players were being in, but it also kind of limited how much we could really push the price up. We couldn't really have gone to them as an insurance policy and then squeezed you know, every last drop out of it that would not have been good for our long-term relationship with them. So we, we priced up based on demand and went up from 12 to 15 and ultimately priced at five times the next year versus four. But any thoughts of going higher, we felt in terms of our long-term relationships with the investors wasn't worth it. That that's quite the balancing act, right? Because you do want to optimize price, but you're also saying, hey, you're taking a bet on me. We're going to put you on the front page. We're going to give you a specific price. So you can't over-optimize. Yeah. And I think the other thing, you know, a lot of times you'll see stuff, you know, maybe it's a professor, they'll do the analysis of, yeah, the company, you know, priced at $10 and went on at $20 and they left, you know, $150 million on the table or, or some number in terms of pricing and you know, that that's supposed to be, you know, something down on the management team or the bankers and gaming yeah. the system. But how I look at it is you're really pricing for the long term and you're selling. In our case, we're selling about 11 percent of our company. Right. And so, sure, you could have pulled some more money out at that time if you pushed a higher price. But you get a lot of investors in. They get in at a lower cost base. They're happy. They can dollar cost average their positions up. And certainly as it played out in Twilio, we did a secondary offering and multiple offerings down the road. Building the price up, having happy investors is far more important than getting the optimal price, in my opinion, on that 11% of the company. You've got to be thinking about future, how much of the company giving up and be thinking about future fundraising and sometimes optimizing 
in the immediate doesn't pay off. It's probably a lot of companies, right, during some of the bubble are dealing with that now. And how did you decide on 11%? Was that based on market demand and conditions or what factors go into that? Because I've seen numbers that may be in the high single digits. I've also seen some numbers even up to like almost 15% sometimes. We were looking at market conditions. How much did we want to go. We wanted to make sure there was going to be enough stock out there for companies to trade so we could have liquidity and trading volume. So we kind of looked at all those factors. We felt good about the company. We felt we were going to increase in value. So we didn't want to give up too much of the company. Oh, yeah. But again, we needed enough of it out there so people could trade and be excited and build meaningful positions. And so earlier you mentioned you're in this war room during the day of the IPO with the bankers. Who are your lead bankers and how did you go about deciding who would uh, shepherd you to this promised land? Goldman Sachs was our lead banking team. Terrific set of bankers, uh, Ryan LeMay, Ward Waltemuth, and Ross Tenenbaum were the key drivers. And we, at the time, like everyone else, was looking between Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley. And the Morgan Stanley team was terrific too. Ultimately, it was some of the more junior people on the team we felt were a bit stronger from a Goldman Sachs that kind of led to the the difference. It was a bit of an outlier at that time. Every company was picking Morgan Stanley. So I certainly got a lot of pressure from our investors going with Goldman Sachs. But these firms, they're pros. They're all good. They've got terrific capital markets teams. They got great bankers. They got great analysts. So when you're dealing at that level, you really can't go wrong. Is there any credence or truth to the saying that you date the buy side, but you marry the sell side? (laughs) I don't know if I would go with that. I'll tell you something I learned. You know, I, I started off in the process skeptical of my banking team. And I also started skeptical even of the buy side. So, you know, be careful on the banking team and the buy side, you know, don't give them too much information and don't give too many metrics. And I think that was wrong. I mean, I really learned to trust certainly my banking. And this is my bankers. And they were involved in all sorts of our strategic decisions down the road in terms of extra financing, convertible debt, M&A. And I really valued that relationship. And I also, you know, especially a lot of the, the longer term owners on the buy side, I really began to look at them. You know, they're your partners. They're your investors and they're your business partners. And um, sure, there's hedge funds and firms that'll jump in and out, and they're they're just trying to get information out of you to make a trade on the quarter. But the lion's share of the people that invest in the company, you know, obviously they want you to be successful, and it's a partnership relationship. And so I really viewed it that way, and yeah. you know, tried to give them as much information as possible to be a good partner. And what were the qualities you prioritized in investors when you were thinking about the mix versus long only versus say hedge funds? Yeah, certainly at the time. And then, you know, for the listeners, when you're in the process about to go public, after you go through your roadshow, you meet many, many investors. Again, CJ, as you said, long-term investors, hedge funds, all different firm sizes. And then you you sit in the room with the bankers and you have a list of everyone you met. And it's a long list. You know, in my time, it was face-to-face roadshows, but we also did a lot of phone calls in the cars between meetings. And we did luncheons with, you know, 50 people in the room. And so we we went through those lists. We wrote down the names and the companies, the people that we felt, the firms we felt that really understood the business and asked questions and also people that we wanted to deal with in the long term. Like, well, mm. we like these people. They have great questions. They understand the business well. 
So we prioritized those, which was a good amount of the money. And then the bankers, they have their model. You know, they do want some trading. They do want some people flipping. You know, so they they have their lists and their clients. And there was some back and forth on what should be what. But they had their individuals in there. So that's how we got through. But there was a certain list we cared about. We want to make sure those people got a good allocation of our shares. Yeah. And someone once said to me, like, dude, you don't want long only and people to never sell you because then there would be no liquidity in the market. Like, that's not a good thing to have either. Yeah, exactly. You know, getting that right is important. By the way, the other thing, too, is going through the roadshow, you'll meet with these investors and they'll look you in the eye and they'll say, hey, we love your business. We're in this for the long term and, you know, we're really going to be committed. So you have that meeting. And then the bankers will show you a list of investors that flip. And that's when investors get an allocation of the shares. And then as soon as the stock goes up, they immediately sell it. And, you know, more than a handful of those people that looked at us straight in the eye and said, we're long-term investors, when that stock went up, they sold. So Really? And there's data on that. So you, you've got to take everything people are saying with a grain of salt. And just for the listeners to give like a math example, if you priced at say $15 and by the end of the day it was at say 28 and they sold during that, they basically get to pocket that difference of, you know, 10 to $15 just on one day, right? Yes, absolutely. So you will get people really pushing to get an allocation. You know, the ideal model is, is you price it and it pops 10 to 20%. So you get a lot of energy and good publicity in the IPO, not too much so you don't leave too much on the table. You can argue Twilio's went up more outside of the range on there. So yeah, so for investors to get allocation of the IPO, it's basically free money. And Lee, you had mentioned the roadshow. Can you give us the inside scoop of what that was like? How long did it last? Um, the roadshow was eight days. And again, you know, now we're, we're in a hybrid era, right? Companies going right. public are doing some face-to-face and, you know, Zoom. This was, I'll call it the old-fashioned roadshow, you know, on the jet flying from city to city, racing in car to car. As I mentioned earlier, between meetings, having calls in the car. So a completely jammed day from 8 to 5 p.m. Now, most institutional investors don't work past 5 o'clock, so that's the good news. So, you know, once you're done with, with those meetings, it's done at that day. And then you would race back and travel to the next city. And I would be on the plane with our head of investor relations, Greg Kleiner. We would be writing down our notes in terms of, hey, who had good questions? What do people say? What do we think about the allocation? And in the background are our CEO, Jeff Lawson, who is a software developer at heart, would have the music cranking. He had a portable speaker, so he would have anything from rock to 90s rap cranking really loud. And that was how he decompressed. And he'd be, you know, taking his notes on that. So that's what the roadshow was like, just busy day and loud music and writing notes in the evening. Do you remember any of the bands or songs that were playing on the, on the plane? <laughs> I remember some classics and I uh, got, oh boy, there is definitely some Eminem and yep. um, I've got to go back into the- it's such uh, a good visual, you guys on the plane doing the roadshow. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> Tone, Luke. I mean, really old stuff. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And did you have your head of IR writing down all the questions and kind of saying, hey, we didn't know the answer to this one. So that way, by the end of the roadshow, it's like, hey, I know every possible thing they're going to ask me and I have a response. Yes, we, we did do that. And by the time you're on the second or third day, you're really in a rhythm and you've heard it all. So like, that's really the first couple days. And then when you're two or three days into it, you kind of get it. 
we'd write the questions down, you know, the ones we didn't nail or get perfect right, we would go back and work on those in the evening. But that's a very systematic process. And by the really by the second day, we were down. The first day, there was a couple bumps. And then by day two, you know, that's your 10th meeting. Things went smoothly in our case. Can you speak to just the dynamic between a CFO and a CEO on one of these? Where by the end, were you and Jeff like, I don't even need to look at you. I know that you're going to take this question versus me. Yeah, you know, I've got a story too. If I go backwards, so okay, and you know, I got aligned. You know, one of his great characteristics was he thought big and pushed big. So we were we were aligned absolutely. We'd have our questions, his questions. You know each other. A couple times, I think for fun, he would throw his question at me. Like later on. You know, a question that he was supposed to answer. Go, Lee. Why don't you take this? You know, really, <laughs> uh, just just to pick things up and keep some of the energy. So, and that's the benefit also of multiple fundraises, multiple investor conferences. We had done a institutional round led by Allen and Company, which is basically like a mini IPO where you meet investors. It's not quite as intense. So, having gone through that process, by the time we we hit the actual roadshow, we were well-versed. And Lee, you mentioned it was over eight days. How did you decide which cities to go to first? Or I guess another way to ask is how do you decide which investors to talk to first? Did you say, let's start out like where we can potentially screw this up that way by the end? (laughs) Exactly. Boy, it's the same thing. Yeah. It's like if you're ever looking for a new job and you have a job (laughs) interview, you always want to interview at a place you don't care about the first couple of times just to work the kinks out. So yeah. So the first set of investors were not all investors are important, but they were not the most important, challenging, difficult investors. So we had that day to work it out. And then by two, we were talking to the people that we really wanted to get on board. So I think that was a little more important. The logistics of, you know, between the cities we went to, you know, that was something that our head of IR and the bankers uh, worked out. Was it eight days of steak dinners every night or did you get to change it up? It's interesting. You would go to a lunch and there would be a delicious, you know, seafood buffet or all sorts of just wonderful food. And you would basically do not eat. There were questions, you would do your presentation and then <laughs> everyone would be firing questions and you would try to get a mouthful in. And so we we walked out of those hungry. Dinner time, whatever city we we're in, we would ask the pilots uh, who traveled there, we say, hey, what's yeah. the best restaurant? And they would try to get us something uh, to go and we'd eat that in the plane. It's so funny you say that about the lunches because you're really the lunch. They're there to talk yeah, yeah. to you. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, I, that's something I learned. You basically would need to eat before or afterwards. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So, going into the moment again, your first earnings call as a public CFO. I guess, first question is where were you and who was in the room? Well, in terms of the earnings call, we did have, in terms of speaking on the call, it, it was Jeff and I, the CEO and myself, who were doing the, the speaking. We had our general counsel to stare at us, right, to make sure we didn't say anything out of line. And a key person, again, was Greg, our head of investor relations. And we would have him in the room. In fact, he had a screen up on the board that if we were answering questions, he might actually type up some prompts, too. So if someone was off track there. So that was a group in the room. I think I had my head of finance also in the room in case there was going to be a difficult uh, metrics question. And how were you feeling before? Did you feel prepared? Were you nervous? What was going through your head? You know, yes and yes. I think every earnings call I did, I felt very well prepared. I mean, we had our Q&A, went through our metrics. I had my cheat sheets. 
well-practiced, but just like a presentation, you know, you always get a little gurgle in your stomach and you get that energy level and excitement up, which I think, you know, for a lot of things leads to a good call. So it was both. Yeah. And if you're getting nervous before, it means you care about it, you know? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, a lot of the audience too, right? We would be in a room, but you know, the whole company, you know, again, in the pre and remote times, the whole company, you know, we'd be in the room, we might step out for a minute and there'd be a bunch of people huddled outside and everyone in the company was there too. So it was not just this kind of abstract group of investor listeners. It was your colleagues every day that you had to face and work with. And so that also made you really want to up-level it and be at your best. Do you remember on that first call if anybody threw a curveball your way? I do not. And and what's interesting is we practiced so many curveball questions, really difficult questions, challenging questions. And when you're on the inside, you know the hard questions to ask. So we would practice like 90% hard questions. And then the basic questions would be like, hey, can you describe your business model again? Or how do you define net dollar retention? So 90% of the questions are just these sincere questions where people want to understand the business better. And in, you know, a small percentage of people trying to be sneaky or clever or try to get you to say something you don't want to say. So as I advise and work with companies now or when I'm on the boards on this stuff, it's like, yeah, you actually spend most of your time on the basic questions. So we yeah. actually we actually got that wrong. It's counterintuitive. It's the basic ones that you got to get down first. Yeah, you're right. And also there's two calls that are going on, right? So you read your earnings script, have your earnings script. And then you answer questions by the sell side analysts that are covering your stock. And those questions are usually pretty, they're very straightforward. Then you have a callback. So that's done. And then for the next hour and a half, you call back. Often, if they had a really challenging or difficult question, they'll save it for the callback that's Uh not being recorded, that's not public. So a lot of them, especially early on, you know, your first call, they don't want to come across as being too difficult or, or what have you. Now, they'll start to get over that after a few quarters. But a lot of the harder questions are not the ones that are being recorded. And that's the inside baseball that I think listeners appreciate because not many people know unless you've gone through the process that there is like at least an hour and a half, sometimes even three hours of calls that go on after the earnings call. Yes, yeah, absolutely. And in a lot of a lot of those calls, it can be more difficult questions. The sell-side investors, they'll be working on their model and their forecasts and they also might get into some some more technical questions on that call that wouldn't really be appropriate for the broader call. So it can be some difficult questions and even some challenging questions in terms of modeling and metrics that take you down a little more into detail than you might get on the broad call. We had interviewed Sonali Parekh of Ring Central, and she remembers on her first earnings call, one of the sell-side analysts was trying to throw out the bait to get her to guide to a metric that they didn't guide to. And she said she almost fell for it, but she caught it right at the last second. Yeah, I had one moment on our call where the sell-side analyst was asking a question, and it was just something we didn't disclose. And I was going, hey, we don't disclose that. We don't forecast that. Here's what I can tell you. And then our head of IR showed me a text from an analyst while I'm talking is like, would Lee just answer the effing question? <laughs> so, and I pointed to the head of IR and I said, tell him no. <laughs> How did you decide which metrics you were going to disclose versus guide to? You know, we went in with the philosophy to go as little as possible. And that evolved over the time, but we basically had enough metrics. We wanted to give our analysts enough information so they could build a financial model and model the business. 
And that, that was really the criteria. And then we had a couple other indicators you know, in terms of the health of business, but it's very minimum. It's really around giving them enough to model and build a business. Later on through analyst days and down the road, we started doling out some additional metrics to try to be more um, helpful to them. But we started off with a very minimalist approach. Got it. That's interesting that you started with the end in mind because you're thinking about what they're building with the metrics you're giving them. Yeah, exactly. So they they need to forecast and model and, and understand the business. And otherwise, they can't predict and come up with their evaluation. So that's like the first criteria for being helpful. And then there's some other factors of the business you know, that we felt reflected on us positively. So those were some of the other ones we disclosed. And did you benchmark yourself of what you were disclosing and guiding to versus other peers kind of in, in your tech peer set? Yeah, we did. Again, as I mentioned earlier, in our case, we did not have a lot of comparables. Yeah, you look different. So, so it was really like everything. We said, hey, this is what we think is important. So this is what we're going to tell you. All right, Lee, we're going to move into what I call our long ass lightning round. So the first question I have for you, what are the qualities that you think separate a good CFO from a great CFO? There's a lot of good CFOs out there. I feel the good CFO, there really is a lot of table stakes you know, in terms of there's going to be some pedigree experience and understanding the finance function that'll define a good CFO. They're going to have a good accounting team, good forecasting, good modeling, good metrics, getting to great CFO or in terms of any role, you know, I, I feel that the great CFOs definitely do not worry about being the smartest person in the room mm. and bring on a team that's extremely talented around them. And I think the great CFOs invest in terms of making their colleagues better across the company. You know, CFOs can be bullies. There's information asymmetry because you know the numbers better. And then again, instead of being that smart person, can you use that information to make everyone else around you better? And I think that defines one of the characteristics of a great CFO. Wow, I love that. It's using your knowledge in the numbers to empower people, not to hold something over them. Yeah, well said. That was, that was very concise. <laughs> I'll, I'll steal that, CJ. <laughs> I stole it from you. I made it up on the spot. Okay, so next question I got for you. Can you give us an example of something you've messed up in your career? I think probably one of the biggest mistakes I regret in my career tied into my ego. And that was a case where I was in a job in a position. It was a legal position. It was supposed to report into me. And the individual ended up working with the CEO and did not report to me. And I was... Mm -hmm hurt that I wasn't going to have all that extra responsibility. And there was a contract or something that we're about to get done that I should have ran through that person. And I remember not running it through. And later on, there was something wrong with the contract and it turned out okay, but it was close. It, it could have really hurt the company just because of my hurt feelings, arrogance, ego, or whatever on some reporting line. And, um, yeah. That one re really sat with me. It's like, you know, and who cares if someone reports you? You're all on a team trying to work together as I matured. So that mistake, I mean, that, that was a lack of maturity and, and too much ego. And it, it really could have hurt the company. Yeah, it's big of you to admit it now, though, because I think when we're all coming up in our careers, we want to build these fiefdoms of people. But then you start to realize it's really not all it's cracked up to be having to manage that many. It, boy, it's very fair. Yeah, in Twilio, I think that was one of my successes. There was multiple times where I had the opportunity for more stuff to report into me. And I had, I had done the COO job twice in my career. 
Yeah. And I was like, no, if I'm worried about all these operations, for me to be a great CFO and think strategically as a CFO, how we allocate resources, it's going to be compromised if I bog down in this other stuff. So I pushed that away and I think it paid off for us. That's such a pertinent example because there are a lot of CFOs as like a CFO becomes more of like a chief performance officer and less of like accounting focused who are offered the COO job in addition. And it sounds awesome, but I guess it also comes with more headaches. Yeah. And I'll, I'll tell you a piece of advice I never took is I had um, a COO, CFO job at a company, same media. And a good friend of mine said, lose one of those hats right away. And I did not. And that was a great example. This was a company that was growing really fast, doubling revenue. And I was insanely focused on operations. We would um, work with ad agencies and deliver ad campaigns and delivering those absolutely perfect at optimal profit. In the meantime, we were strategically going down a direction that ultimately did not make sense and I was not weighing in and involved in that. I was so focused on the operations and I, I was not doing my job as a CFO to weigh in. And again, that could have been another one of those mistakes. And I really learned from that. It's like, wow, you, you can only do so much. And I decided to focus going forward on the CFO strategic aspect of the job. It is funny because you can be really good at a lot of things, but if you want to be great at anything, you do have to double down on something kind of specific or just a, a more narrow realm, it sounds like. Yeah, I think that's very fair. Or at some point, if you have a very broad, talented team, you probably can get away with it. Sure. But in a high growth company, when you're scaling, you don't have that luxury. If you're not focused on what you're supposed to be doing, it can really hurt you. Okay, Lee, last one I got for you. A fun one to end on. I asked this to all CFOs. In your career, what's the craziest thing you've ever had someone try to expense? Oh, the, well, it's funny. I came from a culture at Reuters America where the, the president was an ex-accountant and on front of his door, he would have the worst expense reports submitted. It was plastered in front of his office. It was he would like tape them up, taped to the wall of shame. <laughs> and, you know, it was usually a sales rep. He did not want to be that employee that had some <laughs> egregious expense report. I mean, it was total shame. And that yeah. was the culture. This was this was a bean counting driven company. So it came from I'd like to think we had to set the culture where people weren't being most egregious. But to answer your question, it was, I was at a business dinner and a sales rep actually, I, I watched him spill wine on his pants. And a, about two weeks later, someone on my team came in and said, he put an expense report for new pants because yeah. that was a business dinner. That was the one we didn't allow. One, because it wasn't per policy. And two, I actually watched him spill it. So yeah. <laughs> I think that was. That's that, a that, good one. That, that was one that got shot down. Awesome. Lee, thanks for being generous with your time and taking us through your career. I, I really appreciate the knowledge you've given us. Yeah, I really enjoyed it, CJ. Enjoy the podcast and uh, keep it up. I, I'm really excited for you. Roll the credits, producer Natalie. Run the Numbers is part of the Turpentine Podcast Network. It is produced by Natalie Torrin and edited by Justin Golden. Album artwork by Some AI Thing. Yelling an intro by Fat Joe. If you made it this far, please give us five stars. I really need this.